According to the first century primary sources, Jesus claimed to be the dividing line between heaven and hell, and the book of Matthew is one of these sources written by one of Jesus' original twelve. Let's look at Matthew's passion narrative and ask him to answer our questions about who did it and why. He begins his story not with Gethsemane, but with the Passover. Let's join our teacher, Dave Woodson. We have a lot of debates in our culture. We have debates over who's going to survive on Survivor, and we have debates about who's going to be the next American Idol. In other words, who's going to be the great musician that everyone uh, knows their name for about 10 minutes. You know, there's some debates that really isn't that important. In the long run, who really cares? But I want to share with you that this is a debate that's really important. In fact, I think that there's tremendous decisions and tremendous challenges as the Holy Spirit reaches forth to our land. I think it's very significant that we had the big issue of gay marriages and you see couples going and trying to overturn that. And I'm sure a lot of you are really upset about that. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we have this tremendous challenge to a traditional husband and wife relationship and what that means and the government's role in that and, and a focus on where right and wrong come from as well as everybody talking about the sufferings of Christ. We want to be a place that really challenges you to think for yourself. But as you think for yourself, we want you to go back to the sources that can answer that question. In other words, when we ask the question, like, why was Jesus crucified? Who crucified him? Who is Jesus? Where are you going to get the answer to those questions? And what we want to do today is we want to begin a series about the passion and the resurrection. I believe that the celebration of Easter should be a bigger time for us. It should be a bigger celebration for us than Christmas. It's really interesting to me, like the birth of Christ just initiated the tremendous redemptive realities but it was the crucifixion that our country is really focusing on right now. And it's the resurrection that explains why Jesus came the first time. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew, interesting enough, who's one of the original 12. He was formerly a tax collector, just to catch some of you up. Matthew was a, a Jewish guy that was kind of a turncoat and was conniving with the Romans. And as a tax collector, he really wasn't liked by his people. But one day Jesus came by and said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And Matthew followed him. And he wrote this book. It's the most Jewish book of the Gospels, you might say. Uh, it assumes from beginning to end that you're from a Jewish background. And so today I'll try to color in some of those Jewish influences in the book. But, but Matthew has just finished a major section of the teaching of Jesus. In fact, if you look at the end of, verse, of chapter 25, Jesus says he will reply... I tell you the truth, whatever you did to, to do for one of these little ones, you did not just for uh, themselves, but for me as well. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the right is to eternal life. Jesus has just finished a dialogue where he's been teaching about the really big questions. The big question in all of spiritual life is, how do you know you go to eternal life and not eternal destruction? That needs to be a big question for you. And so Jesus has just said, I'm the teacher that can tell you about who goes to eternal life and who goes to eternal destruction. And that's why I say that the questions about who was Jesus, why was he crucified, who crucified him, what was happening there, those are the biggest questions that you can get the answer to. So Matthew has just raised in the mouth of Jesus this issue of how do I know I go to eternal life? How do I know do I go to, to eternal destruction? And then he begins his passion. 
And what he does is he's a marvelous storyteller and he sets the scene for us. He begins, first of all, with Jesus' perspective. Look at the first couple of verses. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, in other words, what I just did with you, Matthew, make a transition. When Jesus had finished teaching all these things about the sheep and the goats and the parable of the ten virgins and a whole bunch of marvelous teaching that Jesus gave, Jesus said to his disciples, so if you know Jesus as your Savior, Matthew begins by saying Jesus had a conversation with you the inner circle, those that were walking with Jesus, those that knew him. Jesus said to the disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. So we're probably on Wednesday. Jews reckon time from 6 o'clock in the evening to 6 o'clock in the daytime. Two days before the Passover, they're going to have the Passover on Thursday night beginning after 6 o'clock. So it could be on Wednesday in that time period. A couple of days before the Passover, going back in the first century, we're in a Jewish context. You need to be really clear on this. Jesus was Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. All the enemies in the, in the Sanhedrin are Jewish. The Pharisees are Jewish. The crowd that yells against them are Jewish. And so we're in a completely Jewish context. A lot of, a lot of people don't realize that. So if you're really going to understand what it was like in the first century, you need to understand Jesus was Jewish. If you're going to get back to the first century sources where we need to begin everything, this is a very Jewish context. Jesus is getting ready. Two days from now is the Jewish high holy day. The Passover is one of the high points of the year, if not the high point. Thousands of Jewish people from Galilee, even from the diaspora. If you can understand it today in the modern context, and as Americans now, you can feel a little bit better because you've watched Iraq and you saw what Shiite Muslims do when they come to their big mosque. If you've ever seen pictures of of the big mosque, the great mosque in Mecca, and uh, two or three million Islamic people gathering, you'll capture a little bit of a feel. In fact, that cultural thing is much closer to, to what was happening here than anything we experience in the American culture. So that's what Jesus is saying. This high holy day, I'm Jewish, two days from now the Passover is going to take place. Now notice what Jesus says. And the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. The very first thing that Matthew wants you to nail down today, and you need to ask yourself whether you believe it's true or not, is number one, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now to you, that means, oh, big deal. He says, I'm the Son of Man. Who else would he be? Well, Jesus really wasn't the Son of Man the way I'm a Son of Man. I'm a Son of Jack. I'm Ben Jack, Son of Jack. Jesus wasn't really the Son of Man like most of us are. But in the Old Testament, the phrase son of man is a very important word. It's the number one way that for Ezekiel, for example, refers to himself. It was a word that was used for humility. It was a word that was used. I'm just a normal human being. I'm just a normal man. It's one of the meanings of the Hebrew phrase, the title son of man. And it means, and it stresses, and Matthew began this book by saying that whoever this Jesus is, he's just like you. He's a human being. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Which, by the way, in a Jewish context, is really hard to buy. That the Lord would become a human being. But the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah, in some way, would be united with Yahweh, the holy name for God. That he would be a fleshing out of Yahweh. So one of the things that Jesus is telling you is that whatever you believe about Jesus, the first century sources say that Jesus claimed to be an incarnated a totally human being, but he also was a human being that in a very 
totally unique way is one with his father, which is what Matthew's been declaring through the whole book. The other thing that is brought out by the Son of Man, especially in this context of Matthew, Jesus has just talked in uh, what's called the Little Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives. Jesus talks about the future. And he connects Daniel's prophecy with himself. As you think about the phrase Son of Man, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, the Son of Man is the one that eventually comes from God's kingdom. He's the human being that turns out to be the stone that was cut out without hands that smashes all this colossal image that represents all the human governments that try to take over control. So did you think about relating to Jesus? Jesus is presenting himself not as a rabbi, not just as a rabbi, not just as another great philosopher. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man that one day is going to rule over all the universe. Specifically, I'll rule over the world. So as you decide about Jesus today, you're going to be taught that Jesus is just one among many religious teachers. If you're a Christian, that's great for you. Jesus is great for you. But your friends will decide to follow someone else. And I want to share with you that Jesus will give them the right to decide to follow someone else. But when God invades this planet, and when final push comes to shove, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the stone that's cut out without hands. He's the Son of Man that's given the kingdom. And if you trust in Jesus today, then you should be beginning to mirror to people all around you. This is what it looks like when you let Jesus be the king of your life. This is what it looks like when you trust in Jesus. So Jesus in this idea, it says the son of man, all of that in the first century, all of that was connected with what Jesus was telling the disciples. I would expect you to say, and the son of man is going to initiate his kingdom. And the son of man is going to beat the Romans. And the son of man is going to get rid of these religious leaders that are so hypocritical. But he doesn't. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be handed over and to be crucified. And that's the twist in the story. These next several weeks as we get ready for Good Friday and Easter, you need to think, this is an unbelievable twist. And this was the twist that the first century disciples really struggled with. Why in the world was Jesus going to be handed over? Why in the world was he going to be crucified? The idea of crucifixion in the first century, they didn't sing sweet songs like at the cross, at the cross, and, and at Calvary and that. They didn't do that. The cross was this brutal, vindictive Roman way that they massacred people. And they're living in a culture, by the way, where the cross is not a very seldom event. There's been insurrections that have been committed against the Romans. And there's been periodic times from the time of Herod the Great from a rebellion in A.D. 6 and all the way through Jesus' life up from Galilee, there are insurrectionists that the Romans periodically come in and they, they'll crucify a couple thousand Jews just at one pop. So this is real stuff. Like to you, the cross is totally foreign. I've never seen someone crucified except in a passion play. But I want you to know when Jesus says the Son of Man's going to be handed over, he's going to be crucified, those words hit like a sledgehammer to the disciples. And all the questions, why is Jesus going to die this horrible death? Why is he going to be handed over? But what I want you to understand this morning is one of the things you're going to be taught is Jesus is a great human being, a great teacher. He's a great example of love. But he was caught up like all of us in the vortex of situations beyond our control. In other words, for example, I never guessed Joel, my son, would call me up and say that our firstborn grandchild has Rett syndrome. I didn't say weeks before it happened, we're going to be handed over. We're going to go through a real 
tough time of testing. I don't have control of time like that. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. I don't know what's going to happen this week. The way I live my life, it happens. And I'm caught up in the vortex. And I've got all my plans for what's going to happen. And wham, the storms of life come like what hit you last Sunday. And I don't, you know, and what happened earlier, you know, during this week. And tremendous storms come up. And, and a lot of people are going to tell you, well, that's what Jesus was facing. And I want you to know, Matthew says no. So you can decide that Jesus isn't in control, doesn't know what's happening. But you're deciding that in the face of Matthew as a primary source. What Matthew wants you to understand is Jesus is the great king. He knows what's coming, and he's going to allow himself to be handed over. All the way through this narrative, as we study it the next several weeks, we're going to find out that human beings are responsible. They are acting wickedly and violently, and they're responsible for what they do. But there's this sovereign, unseen hand of a father and of a son and of a spirit's plan that's acting out a very incredible story. And that's the very first thing I want you to nail down. Our Savior wasn't caught up in events beyond its control. These events are the plan. And they've been part of God's heart and the Son's heart and the Spirit's heart from before there even was creation. And Jesus was totally aware two days before the Passover what was coming. And you need to start asking yourself, well, why was he willing to do that? And what was moving him to do that? And we're going to get the answer to those questions as we move further into this patch of narrative. The second thing we're introduced to that Matthew gives us a little vignette of what religious leaders are. Now, all of you have been exposed to religious leaders, Baptist pastors, Methodist pastors, Jewish, rabbi, uh, Jewish priests. You've been exposed to Roman Catholic priests. Yeah, if you're from uh, different backgrounds, like your Islamic background, you're exposed to Imams. Well, Jesus introduces us, and this gets us into the question, who crucified Jesus? It says here that the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, I think you can understand this today. This is part of the drama. You need to put it in your noggin that just because someone is a, is a religious leader... It doesn't mean that they're a good guy. In fact, Caiaphas, this guy, he was the son of Annas, and he was the son of a whole family. This family had risen, Herod the Great, eliminated all the legitimate Aaronic priesthood from the Maccabean period, because he hated them, and, he would, and if there was a real legitimate high priest, he could challenge Herod's authority. So Herod systematically, he's the Herod the Great that died right after this was born the one that killed the babies. And he systematically eliminated all the legitimate priests. And what he did is he instituted priests that he could control. The Romans come in, and the Romans, after Herod dies, and they, they divide it up, and they make the central part of Judea controlled by a Roman prefect like Pilate and a governor. These families are, are landed, aristocratic, rich people that control the temple. And they were notorious. A lot of Jews in the first century wouldn't have liked them. Through the book of Matthew, this group of high priests, they are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe there's life after death. They emphasize only the first five books of Moses. And to be honest with you, they're professional religionists. 
And what they're really doing is keeping all the temple worship going. They're keeping all the sacrifices. They make a lot of money from the exchange and the sacrifice. And even a lot of first century Jews didn't like them. For example, the Qumran group of Jews said, these guys all are a bunch of terrible guys. And they withdrew down to the Dead Sea. That's why they did it. In fact, they formed communities that, that would withdraw from these, these corrupt religionists. And the Pharisees rejected these guys and they would attack them, but they say we need to go along with the temple worship. That's the dynamic that's going on. So we have a group of religious people that are professional religionists. Are you going to find professional religionists? Yes, you are. You're going to be exposed to people that try to teach you religion and they have big buildings and they, you know, they try to you know, be all into this religious thing. In fact, you've been listening to a whole bunch of them as you listen to the debate about the, you know, the passion of Christ. You've heard a whole bunch of religionists that AB, you know, Dateline has them on and Diane Sawyer has them on. And you can watch all the different men and women that make their living from religion. Well, what I want you to know in the first century, there were, and, and, and in this context, they happened to be Jewish priests. Which, by the way, when we asked the question about who killed Jesus, this group of high priests was completely destroyed in the wars between 67 and 74 in the first Roman war. The Sadducees were wiped out. This whole ruling class was destroyed. So you can't connect them with the, like the group that comes later. In other words, this specific group that was slyly trying to snuff out Jesus, just like Jesus said, there was tremendous judgment in the Roman War. And when the temple was destroyed, these guys are over. These guys had no influence on the development of what we call rabbinic Judaism, and that's a further question of history. But that's important for you to know when it comes to the question of who killed Jesus. Because it was this corrupt, Sadducean, really professional religionists that were very much in control. And Judaism in the first century is a plurality of all kinds of different groups. Don't equate it just with what you know to be Judaism today. Judaism is very much in flux. In fact, at this time, this Jesus is totally Jewish. And he would be considered as part of the Jewish people. And what's developing is another movement within Judaism. And these high priests want to snuff it out. So you need to nail down, Matthew's very clear. There are professional religionists who, because of jealousy and because of power, will make decisions to wipe out anybody in their way. And I want you to know as a group of believers today, as you go out into the world, you need to realize you need to not be like, you know, Pollyanna and think that there aren't people that don't believe in the truth. They believe in power and they believe in maintaining their position. And I've met some of them in my own life. And if you get in their way, wham! And it's not Jewish. It can be Protestant. It can be Roman Catholic. It can be anything. So the labels don't count. It's what's going on in the heart. And I have met religionists that if you challenge their authority, they'll kill you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Matthew is running to you and saying, Jesus was facing an enemy. The Jewish high priest that wanted to take him out. So the plot is thickening. Jesus is saying he's going to be handed over to, to be crucified. But on the human standpoint, the religious leaders, and you could feel this. This is like a group of imams to make it more of a modern thing. It's like a group of imams that are in Mecca... And they have a young Islamic leader that's starting to get tremendous influence and power. And it's challenging some of the traditional authority of the control of Mecca. And these guys get together. How many of you think that could happen today? Yeah, sure, it could easily happen. 
Well, that's what was happening in the first century. Now we have the third little vignette here. Matthew goes further and introduces a little bit more mix to the story. It says we've got these enemies that are coming. Now we have a beautiful setting. Jesus is staying up in Bethany in verse 6. He's staying in Bethany, and you can feel how dangerous Jerusalem is. Bethany is over the hill from Jerusalem. It would be like, I stay in Midlothian because it's too hot in Dallas County. So that's why Jesus is doing that. He's staying at the house of Simon the leper, which means Jesus is the one that makes lepers clean. Ordinarily, a Jewish leader wouldn't stay with the leper because lepers are unclean. But by grace... Lepers become clean. And now Jesus is staying at Simon the leper's house. A woman comes with an alabaster jar. You've all heard this story. This woman comes into the story, which these are more open houses, and they have kind of the country feel. This lady kind of busts the party. She comes in, and she pours out this expensive perfume on his head, and she's reclining at the table. And the disciples saw this, and they're indignant. They get angry. Why this waste? The perfume could have been sold at a great price and the money given to the poor. Now, we learn from the other Gospels that Judas especially is really ticked off about this. Because he's the treasure of the group. And he's the one that takes the lead in. Why didn't this woman sell this tremendously expensive perfume and give the $40,000 to the disciples' fund? We also find out that he had his fingers in the till that he was stealing. So he's a thief. Now that's important to the story. Matthew's telling us that this woman did this and the disciples are all upset about it. But look what Jesus says. Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. Notice again, Jesus is very well aware how short his time is. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus knows his death is coming. I tell you the truth, and this is what I want you to see. It's very important. You might have missed it. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel, and and when you hear the word gospel, you think of gospel singing quartets. You think of Billy Graham. You think of an evangelist, and that's part of it. But when they originally heard this, it would be like this. Wherever this good news, wherever this good news, and this is what's a weird thing. Jesus is talking about burial. He's talking about being handed over to be crucified. But before he was crucified, he knows that good news about him is going to be sent out into all the world. Look at it. Wherever this good news is proclaimed. Again, when you hear the word preach, you think of me. I want you to think of you. The word preach isn't a technical term in the first century that means standing up with a pulpit and banging on it and yelling and screaming and, you know, or a TV evangelist that you might watch later on tonight. In our culture, preach means preacher, suit and tie, an ordained minister, and on and on it goes. That's what it means in English. When Jesus originally said this, it says wherever the good news is proclaimed throughout the whole world, you're it. You're the proclaimers. You're the ones that announce. Some of you do it quietly. Some of you do it loudly, depending upon your, your personality. Some of you do it primarily through your gifts of helps and mercy, and that leads to sharing. Some of you are really bold, and you just run in there, and you've got a great gift to just let people have it. You're going to do it all different ways, but I want all of you to realize we're part of this proclaiming all the world. The other thing I want you to know, when Jesus said this, they're just this little huddled group of 12 Jewish guys. And Jesus, number 13. And almost, you know, and then there's 120 or so that's added on to that. That's the whore group. From a human standpoint, their leader's going to be cut off. They're not going anywhere. But I want you to know that the gospel has gone out in all the world. Jesus foresaw this. He knew this was going to happen. 
And so he saw himself, and it shows you his control. He saw himself as being part of a worldwide good news movement, even before the cross. It says, wherever this good news is proclaimed throughout all the world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. And I'm fulfilling that today. Because in English, not in Greek, and not in Aramaic, and not in Hebrew, but in English, in a brand new continent, we're thanking the beauty of this precious woman that poured out and did a beautiful act of worship. So again, so you see, the first vignette is Jesus with the disciples. I know what's coming. I'm going to be crucified. The next vignette, the enemy. The enemy are the Jewish religious professionals that were controlling the temple worship in the first century. The third vignette turns back to the disciples again and a beautiful act that a woman did. By the way, ladies, did you see your role in that? Jesus didn't turn you away, and he didn't turn away your act of worship. He blessed this incredible gift that this woman gave. Now we turn back to the enemies again. We look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, notice how Matthew, Matthew's a beautiful storyteller, and you know, I'm, do, I'm really, in a way, hurting the story, because you should just tell stories and, and let it happen. But we're kind of slow sometimes. What Matthew's doing is just telling you the story, and I want you to see how he goes back and forth. Now he tightens. It's like, a, it's like watching a really great narrative that's unfolding, because now he goes back to the enemy again, and the plot thickens. Then one of the twelve, that's horrors. You know, this is the real act of villainy in the story. One of those called Judas Iscariot. Now, when you hear Judas Iscariot, you think of this, you know, it's like a melodrama with a guy with a mustache, you know, that comes whipping in. Everybody knows that he's a really bad guy, and he looks like a bad guy. But that's not the way you would have felt it in the first century. This is the trusted treasurer, the person that no one would ever dream. He's part of the inner circle, and and Jesus loves him. That's what you need to feel here. Judas goes, went to the chief priest we're introduced to. He goes to Caiaphas and the, the ruling group of landlords that are controlling the temple. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins, and from then on, Judas watched over for his opportunity to hand him over. Judas betrayed the Lord according to Matthew for greed. In Matthew's gospel, one of the reasons that Judas betrayed the Lord. Now, you're going to probably see the TV drama. They're going to say that he didn't, you know, he liked Judas' zealotry and he liked the fact that he turned over the temple. And probably they're going to make a big development that Judas rejected Judas because Judas turned out not to be a political revolutionary. There's not a lot of evidence, and you can build somewhat of a case, but there's not a lot of evidence in the scripture that Judas was that, you know, ideal. And as an American, we can really miss it. I want to share with you, brothers and sisters, one of the things that will wipe you out of your intimacy with the Lord is greed. Materialism, 30 silver coins, caused Judas to betray his friend. And so one of the things I say to me, myself, Dave, when push comes to shove and money's on the line, do I betray my friends? If you're related to me and you're part of my inner circle, one of the things that I pray every day, dear Lord Jesus... Help me and I not to be controlled by greed. And if it means losing everything and not betraying my friend, we lose everything. Because Jesus says that inner friendship and family and those that are close to you, you don't ever deny them. You don't betray them. And money is the great deceiver that can cause you to do that. And so that's one of the things that's part of this story. It's, it's, it's this measly something that we're all faced with that was eating at Judas's life. It caused him to steal. It caused him to be a, a veneer where he looked like this real honest guy, but he's stealing. 
And in the end, it's what causes him to go to the high priest. He says, okay, I'll let you have him. And they, they give 30 pieces of silver. And that's part of the story. Now we come to the Last Supper. It begins with the Passover. Our communion today is the Passover feast that became the Last Supper. So on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is Thursday during the day. The first day of unleavened bread, there's going to be seven days of unleavened bread. And just like in the children of Israel, when they escaped from Egypt, the Lord said they needed to get all the leaven as a symbol of the old life in Egypt, the, the symbol of sin. They need to get all that out. They need to bake their bread with unleavened bread. And they needed to maintain that, that purity from leaven for seven days. And the Jewish people remembered this. And so when they initiated their Passover for seven days, beginning with the Passover, which to them they could consider beginning on Thursday... Before 6 o'clock, because that's when they're making this preparation, they get rid of all the 11 bread. That's what's going on here. Jesus, on that day, Thursday, some of the disciples came to Jesus. Where do you want us to make preparations to eat the Passover? All of you administrators that like planning, that like things organized, come on, I want to hear a good amen. If I wasn't responsible for this time, I would have said, oh, we'll just see what happens. You know, maybe the bread will come, maybe it won't. In the first century, the disciples, there were some administrators. By the way, it was Peter and John that the Lord sent. So Peter and John, as leaders in the group, take the initiative. We're going to have a meal tonight. And they go to their master, and I want you to see that part of Jesus' gift, and he blesses you that have that gift. One of your Savior's gifts is that he plants. Because it's obvious from what he says. He says, I want you to go into the city. You'll find a certain man. The gospel even make it more mysterious that he's going to be carrying a, a water pot. Men usually carried water skins. And uh, Jesus uh, tells them there's going to be a guy that's carrying what a woman usually carries. That's the guy. You go to his house. By the way, something you might have missed in this, the reason Jesus is doing this so secretly is he can't let it out. And you can understand it. You don't want to let your movements, if you're under murderous plot, you don't let your movements be known. So Jesus is waiting to the last minute to let it be known where he's going to be celebrating this meal. So he says, I want you and your disciples to go in and make preparation for the Passover. He replied, go into the city and a certain man will tell you. And the man will begin passing the bread and you can hold it. So you'll have it ready. It says, the teacher says, I want, I want you to see that it calls Jesus the teacher. I love that. I'm a teacher, so that encourages me this week. Some of you are teachers. Our, one of the titles for our Savior is he's the teacher. And the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and he prepared the Passover. When evening came, this is after 6 o'clock, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. So here's the picture. I want you to see this is a Jewish meal. Usually you would do this with your family, groups of about 8 to 12. Jesus, his family is his inner core of disciples and with a few others. So they're all gathering together. It was normal for them to do that. They come into a section of Jerusalem. They're in an upper room. The meal would have begun with the dad pronouncing a blessing. Probably Jesus did that. He stood up and you say, blessed is God and thank you, you know, for the gift of this meal and thank you for your blessings. And then a little kid, the youngest person in the group, would say, why are we celebrating this meal? What is significant about this night? And the father in the house would reply and he would tell the story of Egypt. He would say, our fathers used to be slaves in Egypt, and our fathers were under the burden of Pharaoh. And God gave Moses, let our people go. And God brought the tremendous plagues upon the Egyptian people. And then God brought the angel that passed over houses because the blood was on the door. And the Passover lamb shed his blood, and we were covered. Our firstborn didn't have to die. And then Pharaoh responded to that, and we were delivered out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and, and eventually into the Holy Land. 
In other words, they use this time to recount what we call their salvation history. For a Jewish person, that was the great event. It was the great time when Yahweh came through for them. Jesus is celebrating that feast. As a Jew, Jesus is saying, this tremendous history is taking place. That's the meal that he's doing. And there's four cups of wine that take part in that, that meal. They eat bitter herbs. That reminds them of the suffering and the, the persecution that Pharaoh had against them. They eat lamb in the midst of this meal. They take portions of the bread. You want to think of them lying down on their left elbow, all lying down together. They're reaching into probably three tables because there's 13 guys, and they're reaching in. That's what's happening during this feast. Matthew doesn't tell us that much about the specifics of the Passover. I filled in some of the details, and we don't know exactly, to be honest with you, some of our traditions of the Passover are really from 200 years after the first century. So we've got to be careful. Like if somebody tells you they know exactly how the Jews celebrated the Passover in the first century, we don't. And Matthew's not going to fill in all those details, but he does want to nail it down. This is a Passover meal. It's a Jewish time celebrating the deliverance from Egypt. Now, what Jesus does... Is he first of all introduces this idea that one of you is going to betray him. This is an unbelievably tough thing. Jesus says, one of you that is dipping in the table with me. They've all been reaching in. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, how would you have felt? In Matthew's idea of who crucified Jesus, we're answering the question, who crucified Jesus? The religious leaders that control the temple in Jerusalem are going to play a major role. Judas is going to play a major role. As I'm sitting here today, Jesus says to me, Dave, you're an inner disciple. You're one of my friends. You believed in me. And Jesus recognizes that friends can betray. And all the disciples respond. And they respond like this. One of you is going to betray me. And all the disciples respond, it isn't me, is it? And they're implying, I would never do that. That's the idea. But can you imagine how Judas must have felt? Can you imagine how Judas must have felt when right in the middle of this meal... Normal Passover, suddenly Jesus looked at the group and said, one of you guys is going to betray me. I'm sure it hit Judas like a sledgehammer. I want all of you to know. You might be sitting here today, and you say, I got all the verbiage down. I look like a really good guy, but I steal a little bit at work, and I'm messing around with another woman, or I've got really bad anger, and I just let my loved ones have it. Or to be honest with you, I come here on Sunday morning, but I live for myself. That's my agenda. I want you to know Jesus looks at you and says, hey, I know what you're doing. And one of the things that I open myself to, I say, Lord Jesus, what are some of the ways that I'm betraying you? And that's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to think as I'm teaching. Jesus knows my heart. Like, you know, as a pastor, I can be really close to the Holy Spirit today. And as I'm teaching you, the Holy Spirit can be flowing. And I've done this for years. To be honest with you, Sunday night... After I'm all done with my small group and I'm all done with everything else, I can say, Lord Jesus, would you quit bugging me for a while? I want to do what I want to do. I want to be just Dave right now. And I want to do what I want to do. And just don't, just leave me alone for a while. I'm being really honest. And I just want to share with you from the bottom of my heart, one of the things that I'm learning, I never say goodbye to Jesus at all. That I don't want to ever be away from him. That I don't want to ever be communicating. I don't want you to be part of this with me. Because I know, like, with my kids, like, if my kids say, Dad, I really want to be with you. I want to go there with you. I want to do that with you. One of the worst things I can do to my kid is say, No, Jenny, I don't want you to go there with me. I don't want to spend time with you. I don't want to be with you. There's 11 guys in this group that are going to run away, but they're going to end up coming back. 
And we're going to be talking about that in the next few weeks. But one of them was a con artist. He never knew Jesus at all, really, in his soul. He never was transformed. He was a betrayer. I want every one of you to know, Jesus knows your heart. And I pray that all of us will realize, like the disciples, that we've got a real yellow streak in us. And we've run and hide, and we can blow it. But I pray that you'll open up to the grace that makes you come back, and that we'll be helping each other to do that. But I also want to speak to you that some of you might be like Judas. Judas didn't look like a melodrama villain. Judas looked like a really sharp follower of Jesus, but he wasn't. What about you? Jesus knows our hearts. And Jesus says, when are you betraying? When it finally comes around to Judas, and Judas says, is it I? And he doesn't call Judas Lord. He calls him my rabbi, my teacher. And I'm not sure whether there's a Matthew means to communicate. He doesn't communicate, Jesus is my Lord. He's my rabbi. And what Judas says to him, the NIV, I think, is a little bit too strong. It's like Judas says before everybody, yeah, you're the guy. And you would expect all the disciples, jump on him. Let's get him. That's what we would do in our group. And that's not really what happened. It's like there's a lot of noise, kind of like our church fellowship dinners. And uh, it's like Jesus said, you said it. It's like you have said it. It's like I know who you are. But it's not like he just blurted out before all the disciples. In the Greek, there's a little bit of a feel for, you know, It puts the stress upon Judas. And I think in a lot of ways, Judas is still reaching out for Judas. And Judas in the other Gospels responds. He knows now. Jesus knows what's coming off. And if you want to betray somebody, it's an undercover thing. You've got to do it quick now. Who killed Jesus? Betrayal of a friend killed Jesus. And I want all of you to think about that. Are there some friends that were brothers and sisters in Christ with you that you betrayed? Husband, wife, are you a betrayer? Are you a betrayer of your Savior? One of the things Jesus calls you to do today is turn away from that darkness. I want every single one of you to be faithful friends. When I die, I want those of you that are close to me to get up in my funeral and say, David was a trusted friend. And money wasn't what controlled his life. If push came to shove, he would remain faithful to me. That's one of our biblical objectives. One of the things that killed Jesus was the horrible sin of greed. But then Jesus did a beautiful thing. Right in the middle of this meal, Jesus took the bread, which they were using. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread in verse 25, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. You can imagine going back. I want you to think of, here's the original disciples. And now 2,000 years later, many of you have become his disciples. If you're not, what I want to encourage you to do is you can believe in Jesus. He died for you. He really did go to the cross. He really did rise again. And there's no reason for you not to partake with us because it's a family. And what we're talking about here is these original disciples, you know, there wasn't even a a building they could go to or really an organization. These men that were around this table were simply men that had decided we're going to follow Jesus. Then they came to believe he was the Messiah and they trusted him. Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now, there's been all kind of debate, but just stop and think of it. In the original context, Jesus' body was right there. Jesus said, this is my body. Now, bread is something that you all eat almost every day. And it enters into your body. Seeds have been planted into the ground, and they die, and then it produces the grain, and the grain is made into bread, and then the bread is broken, and it feeds all of you, and it enters your body, and it gives you strength. Jesus is saying that by the brokenness of his body, he is going to become internalized in all of our life. What we're celebrating today This isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. 
But Jesus is saying that as you remember him today, and as you've received him into your life, this bread symbolizes that he was broken for you, that he died for you, he gave his body for you. But it also symbolizes the reality that because you've invited him to come and live inside of you, that he's going to be your strength this week. He becomes part of your very being. And that's what we remember today. Right at the Last Supper, suddenly the Passover that spoke about deliverance from slavery in Egypt, suddenly it becomes the Last Supper of Jesus that pictures our forgiveness and that we've been delivered not just from slavery in Egypt, but we've been delivered from our slavery to sin. For thousands of years, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he came down, Moses asked the people, here's the Ten Commandments, here's the covenant of Sinai, will you receive this covenant? And the people said, yes, we will. So Moses killed several animals. And it says he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And what that meant is the people were saying, we're entering into a holy agreement. We are covered with the blood of this covenant. And that was the way covenants were sealed. I mean, they didn't just sign the dotted line. They sacrificed an animal. And the blood was sprinkled. And it made this thing very important that the children of Israel are now God's covenant people. One of the major things about Judaism until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it was about the blood of sacrificial animals. The disciples had just gone that afternoon. And the priests had slit the throat of a lamb and they had gathered it in basins and they had anointed the altar and, and the blood had been shed. And then they bring the lamb, they give the fatty portions that, that the, they burn on the altar, they bring the lamb back and the, the disciples had eaten this lamb. Jews don't do that anymore because they can't because the temple in Jerusalem is in. But I think in the flow of history that God just said in the flow of history, the final lamb has been offered. And the gospel wants you to understand that Jesus does see himself. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered and took the punishment for sin, the pain of sin, the judgment of sin that I deserved. I want you to realize you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And therefore... The new covenant of Jeremiah 31 through the blood of Jesus has been initiated. And Jesus, according to Jeremiah 31, has created a new heart in us. That's why Jesus said here, he also took the cup, which, by the way, probably was the third cup of blessing. He said, he took the cup and he offered to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. As I drink with you today, I look back to the cross. I've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, therefore I'm forgiven. And so have you been if you've received that precious covenant, that precious promise. But I also look forward to the day when our Savior will again take the cup. We believe that day is coming.